Clear prop. Star 73 is Cherokee, number two, following twin traffic, three mile final. There's something One trailer Bravo, Rakesford in runway 25, going uh, four mile final. This is Behind the Prop with United Flight Systems owner and licensed pilot Bobby Doss and his co host, major airline captain and designated pilot examiner Wally Mulhern. Now, let's go Behind the Prop. What's up, Wally? Hey, Bobby, how are you? I am fantastic. We have another guest today, uh, kind of another aspect of aviation that we haven't talked a lot about, up to this point anyway, and we have with us today Dustin Newell from TexasStickAndRudder.com, uh, Wally's Airport, fellow aviator from there. Dustin, thanks for joining the show today. Oh, well, thank you for having me. The interesting part about Dustin is he's also an air traffic controller, and we'll get to that as part two of this episode, or the second half of this episode, but uh, as we prepped a little bit here, I... Fell on my sword, and I've never even been in a tailwheel aircraft before. I haven't even, I don't think I've even climbed on one. You've got thousands of hours, and we're going to have a good conversation. Wally, do you, you have a tailwheel endorsement? Well, actually, I, the first time I flew a tailwheel airplane, I think it was prior to 1986. So, uh, you, you didn't need one. Oh, so, wow. So, um, legally, I'm legal, but I certainly would not go out in a tailwheel airplane today without, without, um, a little bit of training. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, on your website, you talk about training and acrobatic training and CFI spin training. So you, clearly you do a lot of stuff up there. Tell us a little bit about your background and how you got into aviation for starters. I started, I guess this will be my 30th year. So I was, I was 14 when my mom got me my first um, lesson in Springfield, Missouri. And I was hooked ever since. I mean, now I didn't finish until my early well i guess it'd be my yeah early 20s so i think i got my license at 24 so it'd be 20 years with the license and i finished up here in conroe when i got out of the military but um then took a hiatus with kids you know raising kids and common common yeah, story no, we all heard that no money um or lack of money and uh but uh, one day I decided, uh, I said, man, I've got to finish my private. And, and the GI Bill, I still had it. It was just sitting there and not being utilized. And finished my private and went in and applied the rest of the GI Bill money to finish my instrument. And then um, had a, there was an accident up there that kind of touched me pretty bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, Masashiwakawa and the twin um, was a fatal accident in Conroe. So I kind of hung up my hung it up for a little while up there and then uh, after the kids kind of got a little bit older I said you know what it's time to it's time to finish this and ended up doing my commercial in my um in my super decathlon and I did the check ride in that and then I did my C- my CFI in the um in the super D so yeah it was kind of it's kind of not neat. the common aircraft for a commercial check ride. No, sure. it wasn't. And it was uh, very challenging. That day was probably one of the worst. It was blowing 35 and, you know, I took it with Wanda Collins actually up here and she was laughing the entire way. I was going to say, if somebody's going to be in the back or in the front, I'd have it to be Wanda. Oh yeah. Day. And she was, she was sitting back to me and she's like, what's her altitude? And I'm like, uh, <laughs> it was all over the place. It was pretty bad. I mean, we stayed within limits, but, uh, yeah, it was it was extremely rough, and we got back and landed. She's like, "Man, she goes, that was a very interesting check ride." I said, "Yeah, yeah, it's it, 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 it was rough." No, I bet. And Wanda gave me my commercial check ride uh, a couple of years ago now. Yeah. So I did it more the traditional route in a one seventy two that was uh, one that I'd flown quite a bit as well. So 
always loved aviation just got into it how, how did you how did you find that that bug that we all talk about well you know i, I grew up in a uh, little little small part fort leonard wood missouri dad dad had uh access where we could go out to fort leonard woods cannon range and get in the tower and watch the fighters and stuff out there and so that always really intrigued me and but then yeah, you know, it really just kind of being around them, staring up at them, looking at them. I never had a family member that was a pilot or nothing. Um, it was just something I always wanted to do. I actually went into the military at well, seventeen, going on eighteen, went straight in to work on work on planes. I was an aviation electrician working on EA six B prowlers and mm. VAQ one twenty nine and VAQ one thirty four. Um, which was an Air Force expeditionary squadron. So we actually were a Navy squadron with Air Force pilots which was pretty interesting that's a whole nother topic to watch that watch that happen in the intermingle of them squadrons but pretty neat um so with the i've just always been around to be around airplanes um always yeah i i grew up probably from where we're sitting i probably grew up less than five miles from here in a little subdivision just 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 short of the railroad tracks over there and i always saw these little planes and i would have loved to you know, I think it was me looking up, going, "How do you do that? Like, yeah. who, 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 who's able to do that?" And really, it's not that difficult. It does take a little bit of money, yeah. um, but it, it's not impossible, even if you don't have money, right? So you, you can find scholarships and do things. But I think we all somehow, some way, have that same historical bug that we had. And I didn't start flying until I was forty-three. So yeah. uh, my wife was always the "you're not going" kind of wife, and, right? One day I broke her down, or she had a soft spot. One, I think she probably let me go. I probably didn't convince her, but um, yeah, I've had a lot of uh, you know newer students come up to me and ask me the same thing. You know, I, I want to fly. I want to fly. I want to get started. I'm like, all right, well, start your ground school. Do your ground school. Get the, you know, get your ground school out of the way. I was talking about Brian earlier, one of my first private students, and his he was lucky enough. His dad bought him an airplane, and. and it was a nice two, Cherokee two thirty five, and I knew I knew the airplane. I knew the guy wanted to sell it, and his dad's like, "Well, I'll buy the airplane if you teach him." And I'm like, "Oh boy, um, that's not what I wanted to really do at the time." But I said, "All right, I'll make you the promise, Brian." I said, um, "I'll teach you. You go pass your written." He turns around and looks at me, and he goes, "I already did." <laughs> I go, "What?" He goes, "Yeah, I already did." I go, "Have you ever taken a lesson before?" He goes, "Nope." I go. Well, okay, let's go fly. There you go. So and I think that's kind of the biggest hurdle is getting that groundwork done. That's where you see a lot of struggling with. And once that, the flying seems easy. Yeah, and Wally and I talk about it quite a bit. We, we are big believers that you can do all that groundwork, but you don't always have to take your written first, right? No, like no. Uh, there is a practicality that once you do put your rear end in that seat the first time, you're going to learn something you couldn't just learn from a book, sure. right? And uh, I, st- we, I still hear it around here all the time. Somebody be talking up front, and my office is real close, and I say, I'm going to take that written before I solo. And I'm like, you know what you're going to learn after you solo? Like, there's so much cross-country and weight and balance and yeah. nighttime flying. Why would you go take a test on all that before you experience right. it if you don't have to? Um, so that's that's true. an interesting um, look at how someone got their start in aviation for sure. Um as we've been talking, you've rattled off more planes than I even know what they are. I don't even know <laughs> half the numbers. I was over here on my laptop trying to key them all in, and I couldn't even figure out what all of them were from your acronyms you were sharing. But you've clearly owned more than one aircraft. How many aircraft have you owned? Well, I get I get teased a lot at uh, at the airport. Like, all right, wh- how many? What's the new airplane for this this month, Dustin? And I was like, 
and it it has been quite a few. Um, he's getting a little red face now. I, <laughs> so y'all, can, y'all can't see it. Yeah, but he's getting a little red on the yeah. face. There. I, I think the last count was, I think seventeen in the last 17. five or six years. And before we started recording, he said, you know, I've got four and I want to get down to two. And I said, Dustin, a lot of people would be really jealous of having four aircraft. Uh, not too many people want to go from four to two. They probably want to go two to four. But yes. as someone who owns more than four, I get the burden and the struggle with that, too. It does. And I because I, I do a lot of the maintenance myself on it. Um, I say a lot of the owner assist maintenance and, and that you know, they trust me. I'm working on my A&P also. So it helps me finish my A&P out. And, Good. Um, but yeah, it, it does become very tiresome when you're trying to instruct, trying to, to fly them all at the same time. It, it, it's, it's a handful. And I don't know if you know the number, but out of the 17, how many were tailwheel versus traditional tricycle? Uh, let's see. One, 190, the 195, we'll start with, well, actually we'll start with the super decathlon, the 195, the pits, the J3, um, Everybody on the, the everybody listening is just crying right now. Christian, you that much? Super Eagle, and now the Super Cub. I got a Super Chipmuck coming. That was Howard Davenport's old plane. Oh wow! So yeah, he's kind of gonna be a surprise. Wow! It's it's Howard's old plane that he flew in in um, um, Roots of Africa. If you ever watch him do the inverted ribbon cut, I yeah, saw, I he just I posted on Facebook. It was the that something is, anniversary of that thing. I, that is his old plane. I've does he know you? Does he, he know you have it coming? He he does. I called him okay. actually the night that the trade was kind of going down, and the gentleman called me and, and I won't mention the gentleman's name, but he's he's pretty famous. I say famous, he, well known, and um, he calls me and we talk and talk and talk and you know he's like you you want to trade for your BT? I said, yeah. What do you got? And he mentions the Super Chipmunk and mentions a Globe Swift, which I've always loved Globe Swifts too, and um. I said, yeah, let's let's do it. So we get to do it. And he sends me the, the end number off of the plane. And it just and he mentioned Roots of Africa. Well, you know, I've known Howard a long time too. And I went, Man, that seems familiar. What well, are the chances? So I I t- I'm Googling everything and it pops up and there's Howard's YouTube, you know, video. And I went, Holy cow, there's how <laughs> Howard and I call I immediately call Howard up and say, You're not gonna believe this. He's like, What? I said, I found your old super chipmunk. He goes, it's here? I said, it's in the States. And wow. uh, I said, I think the deal's not done. I said, but um, I think it's going to be done. Um, he's like, you're kidding me. I said, no. He goes, will you make me one promise? When you get it back here, then uh, I'm the first one that gets to ride with you. I said, under one condition, you teach me your old aerobatic routine. <laughs> <laughs> so he's like, deal. Um, so we were trying to work work out some logistics to where they were going to bring both planes to me. I made the offer. Hey, I know the weather in Denver stinks all the time. And especially this time of year, trying to get from Denver to Houston in two different airplanes. We're going to try to meet. We've we've been trying to meet for the last three weeks, um, about halfway Amarillo area or something. And and then I've offered to Howard, Hey, you want to go with me and you can fly it back with me. I'll sit in the front or whatever. It doesn't matter. But we just got to get our whole things figured out. and Yeah, that's got to be cool. Yeah. So more than half tailwheel. It's been half, yeah. And that's that's kind of what I'll probably stick with from now on. Um, I'm trying to get back down to my twin, just the twin Comanche and my Super Cub. That's Because the Super Cub actually, 
makes sense teaching wise. Right. Um, it's easier to teach soft field, short field, more bush style kind of flying. So, so I've heard all the same, I don't want to call them rumors, but statements about tailwheel people, right? If you learn how to fly a tailwheel, you'll be a much better pilot because you understand. And, and same thing with gliders, right? If you fly a glider, you're a better pilot. I, the are stigmas about, I guess, the aircraft. Um, you'll know really what a rudder's for if you learn yeah. how to fly a tailwheel aircraft. What, what, what are pilots that don't have tailwheel experience not thinking that they should be thinking about the tailwheel endorsement and getting in it to fly it? Well, mainly it's, it's the use of their feet. Um, I can actually tell if I got a student that's come to me, he's had really good primary instruction in a, in a typical aircraft that's been taught how to use his feet because they'll get in and they naturally do it. And the ones that haven't, well, you can, the first lesson we'll go out and do, I was like, all right, you sit still, you put your feet flat on the flat on the ground or flat on the on the on the deck. I got the plane and I just slam the rudders back and forth. Or you know, we'll go hard left and using their body, you know, generally all of a sudden they're sliding way hard to the right, or they're now they're sliding way hard to the left. And as they're sliding, they're like, Wow, man, that's that's a lot. I go, Yeah, it is a lot. I said, But your body's your turn coordinator. Just mm-hmm. use that. Once you're centered up, then you're not sliding no more. You're not gonna slip into a turn, you're not gonna skid into a turn. So it makes you kind of body feel more of on the, especially on a, in a cub, your center, your center lines right on the center of gravity right. on the airplane. So you can feel more. And if you're in the back seat, it's even worse. Um, sure. Because you're behind. Bigger, bigger, bigger distance, yeah, bigger, you're, bigger you're slide, farther. bigger slip. Right. So, you know, it, it really makes them use their feet more. Um, I, we got a guy there that just finished his IFR um, at uh, Cleveland. He did a couple lessons, just a couple lessons with me in in the um, uh, Super Cub, and he comes back out. And he's like, "Dust man, you you taught me how to really use my feet, especially for crosswinds mm-hmm. and you know proper proper deflections." And, and he's like, "Man, he goes, I've just become a better pilot with it." I go, "Well, that's that's the goal is is you actually feel it, you see what the airplane needs, and and you know use it that way. Show what adverse y'all is when you." feet flat on the floor and you're yanking the stick hard left and watching the nose rise back up through the horizon and then cut back down and and then what your feet are there to counter it so it's 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 a unique skill yeah and so i i don't know what the number is but i'm sure you have some idea what when people call you say how long is it going to take me what's, that's the first that's the first question how about, dustin can i get done in four hours or yeah what? how much is it going to cost yeah. me um you know, obviously all rates of having to go up because the insurance purposes. I mean, insurance has become, we just renewed the insurance on the Super Cub, and luckily I got it to kind of stay the same. But still, it's it's just extremely high just for dual instruction. I mean, on a, on a whole value that's, that's not as high as what it really should be. But um, So we've had to go up on our prices a little bit. But I, t- I usually get, tell them, look, budget for 10 hours. Um most of my guys, most of the, the students are anywhere from two hours to wow. six. And it's everybody's different. And I tailor I tailor the instruction to the individual. Um, I start off with with uh, wheel landings first. You know, that's kind of the everyone's like, oh, why you do that? You know, it's kind of that's not the old school way. Everyone's three point, three point, three point. Go to the wheel landings. I teach wheel landings first. Um, because I think it's more of a natural way of sighting down the runway. Plus you get to actually fly the airplane off you know, to the runway, onto the runway, and then, and then stop. Um, 
so you get to see the full transition gotcha. of uh, of how the airplane operates. Um, so yeah, it's it, everyone's different. Every, it, well, I know that I own a flight school. I was just asking because <laughs> that's what everybody's thinking out there listening to this show right now. How many hours does it take? And I've I've heard the the variances of those things. We thought about throwing a deal out there. I've been kind of pondering it around. Of don't of, do it. Of don't a, do it. Of a, of a fixed cost because if. I kind of look at it. If I can't get you through it, I'll eat the costs right. because I, we do. And I, and I do have guys, I've got guys that drive all the way from Austin um, because it is, I wouldn't call it a dying art. Um, it's just, you don't find a lot of tailwheel instructors. Uh, Joy down here in, uh, I think she's out of West, West Houston. Um, yeah. I've heard her name. I'm not sure where she's jo- at. Joy. Fabulous. One of, one of the best of the best instructors, but yes, you know, she's, she's slowing down. She doesn't want to do it as much anymore. And she's starting to send people my way and she's not taking new students. And there's just not a lot. I wouldn't call it quality. Just, there's just not a lot of other individuals that do it on certain sides of town. Well, I, I don't know if it's a, if it's a feeling or reality, but are there as many tailwheel aircraft out there available to GA pilots as there are tricycle? Not really rental-wise. I mean, there's some clubs. Maybe on people's farms and, you know, maybe the uh, crop dusters of the world still. But, yeah. I mean, not in hangars around here there's not that I know of. I know of a couple yellow planes. We'll say they're all Cubs. And then yeah. a couple of maybe one decathlon on Yankee. And that's all I know on this field, really. Maybe a pits or two. But right. you're talking five or six aircraft out of the hundred that are hangered here. It's a pretty small percentage in the it, grand scheme of things. It is, yeah. I, I would agree with that. There's not a lot at Cleveland. There's only, I'd say, four. Yeah, maybe. And, and most of those are are experimental home builds, yeah, aren't they? RVs, yeah. There's two, yeah. two or three RVs. Maybe with the RV market, there's a little bit higher than 5 or 10%, but that's just we can't teach in them. We can't learn in them, right? Yeah. So you'd have to be tailwheel proficient probably before you even went to start building or thinking about getting an RV. Yeah. And the RV I've flown every single one of the RV series and you, you talk about just fantastic airplanes. I mean, they, they fly great. They land good. They don't have any bad habits. Um, we were talking about bad habits the other day on a Murphy rebel that was built on our airport that it, that one is, it, that's almost gotten some people in some trouble just cause it's just a poorly designed tail, poorly designed, uh, area on it and right. it, it's it scared me a couple times well you've flown a lot of stuff and before we started you told a little bit of a scary story that you you bought a you bought a twin yeah and you flew the twin home tell us tell that story about when you got to the airport your home airport there oh with the with the conroe oh that uh, and that was the uh, yeah that was the um bought the uh, turbo arrow and then uh brought it back from from fort leonard wood missouri and uh, ended up trying to shoot the approach into Conroe, and of course battled a fifty knot headwind, forty five knot headwind all the way home, getting tied on gas. Luckily, I was talking to Hugh McFarland, the fellow controller, is on the approach side, and I go to sit up for the approach and trying not to the RNAV going into to one four, and um, trying not to shock cool that turbo and real high, and I go to drop the gear, no gear, and I'm like, oh boy, um, and the other my old. IFR instructor was with me and I was like, Do you feel the gear come down? He's like, Nope. I said, I neither. You know. We ended up ultimately having to go miss. We're in the clouds, trying to Bluetooth and call. He's I'm on the phone. He's flying the plane. I'm on the phone with the previous owner trying to 
<laughs> is there a trick to get yeah, these deer? Like, am, I, am I missing something? Because this is not. You know, I had quite a bit of time and an arrow. It's, you know, I'm, I'm missing something that I'm not doing right. And he's like, no. And uh, of course, we had the lights on. And lo and behold, you know, the old Piper way. You turn them lights on, it really dims. Yep. Dims those gear lights. Gets which, everybody. Yeah, it does arrow. get everybody. Um, so that was one part of the problem. But the gear had never come down. So ultimately, we ended up, you know, emergency extending the gear, and it came down. And but you know, here you are, still a brand new airplane. Are they all the way down? Because the lights are still really dim, yep. and I'm swapping bulbs out. And <laughs> I think we ought to make it a lesson where everybody has to swap bulbs out, check the dimmer switch, and sign off that they know that they'll have to do that again in the future because oh, yeah. they always still get people. Yeah. I I would bet there's been more low passes by the tower in our arrow than real landings because people. They, they they forget to turn those lights back on after a night flight. Yeah, you know? and I and or I turn them off. And turn them off. Flight. Yeah, because I out of the, all the ads ever on Piper arrows and stuff like that, it's like why would you not fix those lights to be a toggle switch or yeah, something? It just not a dimmer. I, I, no, never understood that because it well, can't, don't do that because that's going to cost me money to get mine <laughs> to not be dimmed anymore. Right. There's probably a fix, but uh, hopefully they won't enforce it anytime soon. Yeah. Then my second one, well, you're talking about the multi that that just got that um, twin Comanche and been working on my my multi, my first solo in, and I go out. I hadn't had a lick of problems with this airplane flying with other instructors, and I'm over the top of Lake Livingston watching the water bomber. There, I guess they're here in town. I, a, I watched them a few weeks ago. Yeah, That's pretty cool. It was very cool. So I'm up there just circling them. Just I was at 3,000 feet, just goofing off and, and just watching them. He'd pick up water and he'd drop it again, pick up water, drop again. It's like, oh, this is neat. We don't see that very often. And I'm like, I'm gonna, I'll just shoot the approach in because I'd gotten the, that GPS. Had set, this plane had set for 13 years. And I could not believe everything turned on, but ended up taking the, the it had a 430 WAS in it and got it all fixed back up to see if it would actually finally pick up the glide slope for the RNAV into Cleveland. And it did. And I'm sidestepping off to go and um, join three, four to land. And I could put the gear down on that twin, nothing. Ugh. And I went, Oh, you're kidding me. Try it again. Nothing. Try it again. Nothing. I'm like, no, nah, man, this is like a simple gear system too. So I go around, I'm loitering over Tarkington and I was like, well, it's like I was taught by you know Tom Street how to do it, and he's, pick, he's like, whatever you do when you pick up the the, the middle of this thing, don't don't throw it the back seat because the instructions are on the <laughs> on, on the actual door of the of the for how to emergency extend. And anyway, it came down right then and there, and sure enough, it had broken wire on it. We jacked it up, and you know, but well, yeah. I, I haven't had that happen yet, and I hope it doesn't happen. But I'm knocking on wood right now. If you can't hear it on the podcast, <laughs> right? But uh, yeah, I aspire to solo my own twin. I'm rated, but I don't. I'm not proficient enough. So one day I'll solo, and if that's the first time my gear don't come down, I'm calling you, Dustin, saying it's your fault. Well, that's what we're ultimately. I bought this twin Comanche. I've always loved twin Comanches. They've been one of my favorite airplanes, you know. And I hate seeing airplanes set. And this one had been setting for 12 years. Um, I ended up buying it. Got a pretty good deal on it. Got ferried it up into into Cleveland and just re start and redo it actually i painted it myself i sanded it all down we put it in a paint hanger and we fixed all the corrosion issues and painted it and fixed it back up and it has been a fantastic little airplane from now on i mean well, ride engines high time but i bought another engine for it just in case but that's kind of our goal is is maybe f focus more on multi-training uh tailored multi-training 
and then uh, and still the tail wheel, obviously, because the tail wheel is. I've I've had to turn people away. It's right. it's gotten really busy um, the last, I'd say six months. And and we'll talk more about that. You also have a full time job. We'll talk about that job shortly. But right. you don't just do this all the time. Uh, so a little bit more about tailwheel. Uh, I've heard if I fly a tailwheel, if I own a tailwheel, if I become a tailwheel pilot, I'm going to tail loop it, um, which doesn't sound like a lot of fun. But is it true that if you're a tailwheel pilot, you will tail loop a plane? Yeah, yeah. They, 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 sometime in your lifetime, if you if you really consistently fly tailwheel, it will. It's it's going to do a ground loop, and it and a ground loop actually you can do a slow ground loop and really demonstrate what it's going to happen. And I've and I've shown a couple students that that you know you taxiing down the runway, you get distracted, and all of a sudden you reach over and you push push too hard left rudder. You know you you, you just whirl around, and it's a really slow ground loop. But you know fast forward it to to you know doing thirty five forty miles an hour, then you know it's obviously going to be more dramatic. Um, I mean I've had it I've had one student ground looped me once, but he just because he blocked me out of the rudder and I couldn't I couldn't fix it with power or anything or anything like that. But I mean, something some variable is going to happen. You're, you're a spring's going to break. I mean, stuff breaks. Tailwheel's going to fall off or something like that. It's just um, a quartering tailwind that will catch you off guard. I got a story about a Pitts S2 that I was with, flying with Taylor Meyer once, and uh, it about got away from me. And it don't, and we, we sit there and I mean, I'll tell the story eventually one day, but it, it, it was, it caught my attention. Um, yeah, it was, it about came messy pretty quick. So I mean, it's, it's going to happen. Um, I mean, it's just, it's inevitable. And then I think, uh, I don't understand it, but what, what other challenges would there be with, with tailwheel flying that, that a fixed tricycle pilot doesn't understand? Um, if any. Well, I mean, I, I think once you get back, when you once you get in the airplane and get comfortable, like my first, my very first lesson with every student, especially fresh, um, I will stick them in the cub. We'll go out and do basic maneuvers, sit them into some slow flight, show them how docile a stall is in a cub. I mean, it just it won't break. It just floats. It's like right. a falling leaf, and it really that kind of helps them with their feet and keeping keeping the nose straight, basically keeping a coordinated descent all the way down. We do that for a little bit, get them, get them used to it. Then I, I call it the river run. I take them over to the Trinity river north of seven eighty seven, and we kind of drop down in towards the river and I liken it to, to driving, you know, teaching a kid how to drive a car. You stick them on the road, they follow the road. Well, you stick them on the river, they follow the river and the river has meandering turns and it's pretty sharp here and there, kind of docile in, in some spots. But it can, I can tell what they're doing with their feet. They're using their feet and their and the stick to actually keep it coordinated, going all the way up and down the river, versus going up and saying, "All right, uh, turn left and you know fly heading zero nine or zero or or fly one eight zero. I mean, we could do that all day long. It's just they're not seeing what they're really doing out in front of right. them. And I think the river gives them that that visualization of, and they really pick it up pretty quick. And then as soon as we're done with that, we climb back up to. A thousand foot or whatever we go higher than a thousand kind of joke is you go higher than a thousand foot in a cub you get a nosebleed so and then we do dutch rolls and once you kind of really start initiating them to the dutch rolls and on you know turns on a point that 
one, they're going to get aggravated because they're either pushing way too hard on the rudder left or way on the rudder right. But once they start really doing really small ones back and forth, they'll steepen it up and do steeper. But I call it a warm-up maneuver, and I do that in every single airplane I get in. It doesn't matter what it is because um, I want to see the harmony. I want to feel how much aileron I need with rudder to keep it coordinated. I mean, you could do it in a 737. You could do it in a, you know, a... a any anything really right. it doesn't matter um so i think when they start doing that and they start picking that up it's um they're ready for the pattern so it's and the final saying i think goes that if i become a tailwheel pilot i'm a better pilot right and, and i think we through all we've talked about i don't know how you could become better if you learned and felt all these things yeah. on a regular basis and knew these inputs were counteracting each other or helping the plane stay coordinated surely yeah. you're gonna be a better pilot yeah i think so i mean i think you know I do. I was taught by I call the best. I mean, the, the, the Tom Street. I mean, if, if you ever meet the man, his teaching abilities. One hour with that guy in the airplane is ten hours with any other instructor. I mean, that's just what I liken it to. It's, and when he taught me my tailwheel, he he taught me to teach tailwheel, and that's we we do everything from stuck stick maneuvers. We'll go out and he'll hold the stick. I mean, perfectly still. I said, all right. You got stuck stick. Get us back to the airport. Well, you know, I do the same thing now with the students. Get us back to the airport. Get us back to the airport environment. We're not going to land it, you know, but get me down to 30 foot, 50 foot. Give me to treetop level. Show me where we're going to survive this. And, you know, quizzing them on it. What are our controls? Well, I got rudder. Yeah. Well, I got uh, I got power. Yeah, power. What else you got? Oh, uh, you know, they're like, how about trim? You know, so now they're sitting there and actually flying the airplane, you know, with your hands and just their hands and their feet. And it proves to them that they can get back to the runway environment. And is it going to be pretty? Probably not. But at We're least gonna live more than we can walk away from it yeah. more than likely. Yep. And while there's few of them, we can replace a plane. We can't replace That's ourselves right. for sure. Yep. So you don't do this full time because you got another job. Tell us a little bit about your job uh, that you have. It is full time. Yep, I'm an air traffic controller at Houston, Houston Center, New Orleans specialty. So, been there for 20 years, two, 21 years now, uh, since 2001. And, so uh, he knows the other ATC guys that have been on the show in the past, um, but does work a different sector, New Orleans. Uh, that's kind of is it is it interesting to work New Orleans compared to the Houston market? Yeah, yeah, it's it's you know being outside of of uh, the IH or Tracon terminal area and dealing with, with New Orleans Tracon, it, it is kind of night and day. We're, we're, we have d- different setups, different letters of agreement, different standard operating procedures. Um, we kind of, uh, most airplanes from us over there out of New Orleans come out on headings. There's no SIDS o- over there. We do have stars going into New Orleans. So it's, it is more unique. Um, but we do have a lot of weather, and that's kind of why we're set up that way. We work the most weather um, over in that whole panhandle. But you know, it, at night, we, we, we're actually kind of more approach controllers, too. We take over Baton Rouge approach, Lafayette approach, Mobile approach, and Gulfport approach. Um, Which means that you're covering all the way down to the surface, right? All the way, yeah. 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 And, and on IFR nights, you know, we, we're busy. It's, you know, you, there's, I think one time I've counted having – eight multiple approaches going in at one time at, at different airports. Wow. Yeah. And normally our big night is when LSU is traveling to say Alabama. I mean, it's a 
Baton Rouge becomes a few, few private jets coming and going. Baton Rouge becomes a nightmare. <laughs> it's yeah, it, it, it's not fun. Yeah, we had one night. I uh, I was actually trained. I just switched over to that specialty, and we're sitting there, and my my trainer comes in. We're working the mid together, and I guess uh, LSU had just gotten gotten handed to him up in Alabama, and uh, twelve o'clock rolls in. And we were we came in at twelve o'clock, and Twelve oh five happens. Baton Rouge hits the line and goes, "Hey, Baton Rouge, uh, Baton Rouge, low." Yeah, go ahead, Baton Rouge. Well, we're we're giving up the airspace. Uh, we're going home. We kind of we look at each other and uh, ask him. I said, "Weren't they weren't they supposed to stay there till two? He goes, "Yeah." I go, "Why are they going home?" He goes, "We call him back." He said, you say you guys are going home? He says, "Yeah, yeah. We were told to go home at midnight. We were told you're staying there till two. I said, "No." And here we got a freight train. We got we got twelve lined up going, and, it, and with us, it's one in, one out, and it's IFR. It's turning IFR at Baton Rouge, and it's we look at him. He looks at me. And he's like, well, "What do you want to do?" I said, "I guess we're going to put our big boy britches on and have some see. have some fun tonight." And it was a mess, but you know, it ended up working out. Ended up having to, to divert the the actual football team. Oh wow! Um, to New Orleans. Yeah, so I'm sure that was not a very pleasant um, uh, ride back home on the bus, apparently. But uh, yeah, it's it's a challenging job. I I love it. It's uh, it's fun. I mean, I got four more years left, and I can retire. So I'm kind of set. I'm this the whole thing with my tailwheel and teaching, instructing, finishing my commercial. Um, that's kind of what I'm aiming at to see. It may what, be your full time job then one day. I th- yeah, I th- maybe I've got a couple other aspirations. I've had I've had three aspirations growing up as an aviator, and I think everybody always has a goal, you know, wanting to fly on. Mine was always wanted to be an astronaut. Well, I know that ain't going to happen anymore. I mean, that's how I wanted to be a fighter jock. Well, that's probably not ever going to happen. And I wanted to be a crop duster. So I've always loved uh, farming. Grew up on the farm. So I, I last year I got an opportunity to fly some crop dusters down here in Anawak. Uh, from a, from an owner who trusted me with his air tractors and um so this this year i'm kind of setting up and doing that helping them out trying to learn the aspects of crop dusting and then so now you're in a turp you know, i'm in a turbine um tailwheel so it's we'll see how that works out and interesting yeah i'm kind of i'm kind of hope hope that works out even more so well, we hope it works out for you yeah so Everybody that sends us messages that thinks we may ever talk to another air traffic controller, they want to know pet peeves and recommendations. They might ask the questions differently, but they want to know what they should say and what they shouldn't say. What are some of your top pet peeves and top recommendations for our listeners? Uh, probably a lot of the, you know, everyone talks VFR flight falling. So when I go to Oshkosh and we're doing a, a one of the symposiums with the, with the, the, uh, pilots in there as, as the controllers we do a v, almost every morning we'll do once or twice a day a vfr um talking how to pick up vfr or flight following and and i i usually lead lead the one thing off with the, with the story and i'll ask them all right when we have donuts you know, everybody has donuts up there and coffee and we're all talking it's like, all right how many of you guys fly up here fly to oshkosh you know three quarters of the room raise their hand all right how many of you got flight following quarter of the hand stay up and it was like all right you look that's because how come you don't get flight following well i don't want to bug you guys well you're not you don't bug us trust me it's that's what we're there for 
And I give him this one story. I said, I was working Memorial Day weekend. This has been three years now. Might be four years. Anyway, Memorial Day weekend, a TBM, which is only eight or nine of them left, was just north of Macomb, Mississippi, about mm, 35 miles. And he's at 14,500 feet, VFR flight following. And uh, we hear uh, Houston Center, mayday, mayday, mayday. I've got smoke in the cockpit. I can't see nothing but my whiskey compass. Get me, get me to an airport. Oh, my gosh. And I look over the, the control. I was actually the controller in charge, the CIC. The controller on position looks up at me, and I was like, well, it's, we got Macomb right there. Let's get him over to Macomb. So he kind of gives him a, you know, a whiskey compass vector to, to Macomb, and he starts trucking towards it. And uh, he's holding altitude pretty good, but you, know, you, you could hear in his voice he's getting, he's getting pretty worried. And he's getting closer. He's about 30 miles away and, or 20, 20 miles away at the time. And he finally comes over and he was like, Houston Center, you got, and I got, him, we got him on the speaker so everybody can hear what's going on. And um, he goes, uh, Eric, I usually get kind of touched up when I talk about this, but he, the guy goes, hey, got, Center, you got time for a question or a info? So like, yeah, controller goes, go ahead. He gives us two phone numbers. One wants to his wife. He says, call my wife, tell her I love her. And the other goes, the other one's to my mechanic, tell him I'm sorry. I'm like, oh man, wow. this guy's really worried, and uh, so, and, and this is this is how we work behind the scenes as controllers. What what pilots don't see is we're coordinating everything for you at that moment. You know, I look up the airport facility directory. I call the manager Macomb. I can actually see a couple of airplanes working in the pattern. I call them and say, hey, can you get on the CTAF frequency? Get these guys down. We got an emergency inbound. And can you call the fire trucks for us? Because the fire trucks aren't far away, but they're not on the airport like right. a big airport. Right. They get the fire trucks there. He gets in. He land. You know, ultimately lands safely, and uh, and he calls us back and says, "Guys, I, I just I I can't thank you enough." You know, I was like, "Why? Well, hey, that's what we're there for." So when after I tell that story, usually to a lot of them guys, they pick up fly falling because, you know, I, I mentioned to them that if he would not been on flight following and he would have been sitting there. All he can see is a whiskey compass. He can't reach down and grab that iPad and look up for flight and go, what's my nearest airport? He can't see it. So, you know, we give him a, an option for where he can at least get somewhere, get closer to an airport environment. And, you know, it's more survivability. Of it. Well, more so even if you're listening to, even if you're listening on guard or any other radio you might be on, they might not have you bugged up. You might not know where they're at. So yeah. somebody's screaming, mayday, mayday, mayday. That's not going to help them just because they're listening and they're on a frequency. No, the, the fact that you know and you're watching them is is the big reason why you can help that guy so much. You know where he's right. You know his direction of travel. You know all that stuff. So you can really really help. Exactly. And he couldn't even you know at that time he wouldn't even be able to get to the transponder to squawk seventy seven hundred to say hey, you know I've, I've got an emergency. He couldn't see it. He, all he could see was the whiskey compass. And when he finally got down, got you know, um, and called us and talked to us. He's like, out of the, I think that thing carried, he said, 38, 30 something gallons of oil. He had five left. It had blown the whole bottom cylinder out of, out of one of the, out of that thing. He wasn't going to go much farther. Nope. No. It was very, I mean, just lucky. So after I kind of give that story, you know, I I think it's to promote the VFR fly volume because a lot of people are, students are scared. They don't want to talk to us. And, you know, I get a lot of students now, even on the tailwheel, that that have their private. I'm like, you want to talk? we're in a non-controlled airport no no i don't want to talk i'm like well, okay i'll do the talking it's it's i'm okay with that 
I said, but you got to get comfortable talking. And uh, that's, that's probably one of the hardest things to teach. But the controllers are like that, too. So when controllers are learning to control, a lot of people don't know how we actually train, but we do what's called D-side training and R-side training. So when you're D-side training, you're just an associate. You're helping, you're helping the R-side who's transmitting all, to all the aircraft. But as soon as they're done with the D-side stuff, they move over to the R-side stuff. And, and, and I'm, an, I'm an instructor at work, too. And I and I sit down with a new, a new guy and I say, "All right, let's just get your uh out of the way right now." My uh, I said, well, "You're gonna hit that button. And you're gonna your first train is go what uh." And so so it, it happens to them too. Yeah, it said it happens to them all. They do the exact same thing, and it's sure it's sure enough. They'll hit the button. Go uh, united. <laughs> it's like, see, let's get the let's get the uh out of the way right now. So. We're all just human. Right? That's right. That's exactly right. So that's kind of sounds like a little bit of like a pet peeve and a recommendation all in the same thing. Any others to share with the listeners? Um, I mean, not really. A lot of the uh, set your flight plan up. If you want to do multiple approaches at airports, set it up. Set your flight plan up so we know because a lot of guys will put in. Um, I'm, I want to go from uh, Gulfport to to Hattiesburg. Okay, well, we think you're going to stop at Gulfport or at Hattiesburg, and we're done. Well, then they get up there and say, oh, no, I want to do three approaches and then head back to Gulfport. Well, then now here we are. We're having to put all this back in, re-coordinate everything. You know, if you just put that in the flight plan, and, and that's what the beauty of four flight and the systems are versus having to call and file a flight plan. You can When you hit that button on four flight and you send that to us, it's, it's snap of a finger. It comes right to us. It's that instant. So, So your recommendation is – uh, Gulfport, Hattiesburg, 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 Gulfport. Well, no, you put it. You can put a delay in your flight plan, like a delay of ten minutes or okay. fifteen minutes, and then in in the remarks section of your flight plan, you can put requesting multiple approaches at gotcha. Hattiesburg. Yeah, that that really sense. that really helps us out a lot because we're not used to doing uh, center controllers, approach controllers. They're more used to doing practice style approaches and stuff and stuff like that. But a center a center guy is not. We're you know, when we think you're going to that airport, we think we're done. Um, well, and Clay said some of the same stuff that if you know you're going to do three at Conroe, just tell me when you first start talking to me. Let me know. I also think you're done, right? Or I'm yeah. not going to be messing with you. Like, don't go missed and then call me right back and say, can we do it again? Yeah. And then go missed and say, can I do it again? Like, just say, I'm going to do three, like you said, right? So right. That's, that's a good tip for everybody else. And we do it on a, on a, on an as two basis. I mean, sometimes we're, we're just swamped. We can't, we don't have the abilities center wise to do a lot of vectoring into ILSs and stuff like that. We're just going to give you to the, to the initial approach fix, let you do the procedure turn and go back inbound unless we have the time to be able to vector you into the final approach course. Right. Well, awesome. I'm sure we'll ask you to come back on the show someday, sure. Dustin. We really appreciate you sharing your tailwheel insights, sharing a little tips and tricks there with air traffic control. And uh, I'm sure we will talk to you soon. Wally, anything to add? I do want to say one thing, Dustin. You set us up nicely for a future show. You said you wanted to be a fighter pilot and an astronaut. We might be having one of those as a guest here in the next couple of weeks. Oh, that'd be awesome. So stay tuned. Yeah, I've already seen a video of them talking from space, so stay tuned for sure because it's going to be an exciting conversation. If you want to talk about flight time, they got a lot of flight time Absolutely. flying around this big globe of ours. So as always, stay in front of the tailwheel and behind the prop. Fly safe, everybody.
Thanks for checking out the Behind the Prop podcast. Be sure to click subscribe and check us out online at BehindTheProp.com. Behind the Prop is recorded in Houston, Texas. Creator and host is Bobby Doss. Co-host is Wally Mulhern. The show is for entertainment purposes only and is not meant to replace actual flight instruction. Thanks for listening and remember, fly safe. <laughs>